0: You're listening to Midori House First Broadcast on the 24th of August 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Now our job, particularly for Josh and I, as we take forward this new mantle of leadership as a new generation, is to ensure that we not only bring our party back together, which has been bruised and battered this week, Australia has a new Prime Minister, but is it worth changing the stationery? My guests Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella, and Matt Alagaya will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the physical and political logistics of disinterring a dead dictator, an attempt by some Sicilians to welcome migrants ashore, and when is a Michael Jackson album not really a Michael Jackson album? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ben Ryland, Kiara Ramella and Matt Allagaya, all of Monocle. Welcome all. And we start in Australia, which has a new Prime Minister, although there will be many Australians wondering if there's much point learning his name. Such has been the turnover in the role in recent years. Scott Morrison, for it is he, is the fifth Prime Minister of Australia this decade, if I've counted them right, and arrives in the role, as have several of his recent predecessors, not via election by the public, but by party room coup d'état. Another election is due by May at the absolute latest. Morrison may feel obliged to call one earlier, so his chances of ending up on a postage stamp could be pretty slender. Uh, ben Ryland, as the other fellow, my fellow other Australian at this table uh, today, briefly for the benefit of our non-Australian listeners, and indeed I suspect for quite a few of our Australian listeners, who is Scott <laughs> Morrison? So up until recently, Scott Morrison was
1: the treasurer. Uh, he, before that, he was perhaps best known to Australians as the immigration minister. And that's where he really made his name. He was put in charge of selling some of the most distasteful policies that Australia has, some of the most contentious, uh, the kinds that uh, tend to provoke protests and international condemnation. And it's his job to make them sellable to the public. He did that, and he did it quite ferociously. He's since had a bit of time in the Treasury portfolio, which has given him some much-needed time to endear himself to the everyday Australian, something which Peter Dutton did not have, and I would suggest was part of the reason why it cost him, in the end, the top job.
0: Uh, Chiara, you are Italian, uh, as you may have mentioned on these programmes before, and therefore, by definition, something of a connoisseur of absurd political chaos. Um, when you kind of look at a Australia, how are we doing? Are, are, we, are we matching the standards uh, which your country reached during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and actually really most of the 90s? And oh, yeah. again, more recently? I mean, really, are, are we up there in terms of uh, absurd political circuses? Or do we still have a lot to learn?
2: Absolute beginners. I mean, ah. really, you've only been going at it for about 10 years now. That's nothing.
0: We, we, we used we used to have, uh, it should be observed, fairly normal, gusting, boring uh, politics, really, didn't mm. we, Ben? Politicians, prime ministers used to get in and you'd last for six or seven years or so. And that, that was pretty much the average.
1: Yeah, I, I read something today. I believe it was Annabelle Kreb at the ABC that said the uh, once you were in as prime minister, that first election that you went to was really just a courtesy. You know, you yeah. just had to show up. And uh, that's really not the case anymore, as we as we can. Well, no, you're tell. actually
0: doing well to get to that first election uh, at this point, uh, Matt. How how weird does this look from a, a half world away? You are regarding Australia, which is, of course, a, a an absurdly fortunate, prosperous, orderly, functional, generally agreeable country, and yet. Um, this is what our politicians are doing all day.
3: Yeah, I know. I quite like that you've got an Italian and a Brit in to talk about (laughs) insanity in politics at the moment. I mean, actually, it it seems like it represents quite a lot of what's happening in in the UK at the moment. You know, you have this kind of of right-of-centre party with this slightly radical wing that's kind of forcing everyone to to go a bit in that direction. And, um, I mean, what's quite interesting about Morrison is he sounds like... He sounds like he's kind of one of those people who bridges the gap between the sort of crazy wing of the party and the sort of more moderate centre of what is still a right of centre party. Is that right? Well, that's certainly
1: the PR that's being put out there, although anyway, there are a lot of people on the other side of politics, the more progressive side, that are saying that actually, no, that's what Malcolm Turnbull was supposed to do, and that's the reason you knifed him in the
0: first place. Right. So, to I replace mean, not, him ma- with ma- another bridge builder. But, but Morrison is certainly to the right of Turnbull, isn't it? Isn't oh, he Morrison rather? is absolutely yeah. to the right I of mean, Turnbull. I mean, my, my argument where Malcolm Turnbull is concerned has always been that he joined the wrong party. I think if he joined the Labour Party, he would have been a perfectly plausible right-wing Labour Party Prime Minister in the mould of Paul Keating or Bob Hawke.
1: That's a very good point, and it is actually part of the reason that I think a lot of people on the outside at least are suspecting why Malcolm Turnbull is not the Prime Minister anymore because if you try to trace this back to any policy decision that he might have made, it's just not there. And that was, I think, um, demonstrated by one of the most paradoxical Uh, resignations of this week, who was uh, one of the ministers, Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells. She resigned her portfolio earlier in the week, saying that uh, she didn't think there were enough right-wingers on the front bench, and uh, she objected to the way that Malcolm Turnbull had handled certain issues, such as same-sex marriage, and said that he'd ventured too far to the left. Now, let's just uh, just, uh, dissect that just for a moment. A right-winger has resigned because there weren't enough right-wingers on the front bench therefore leaving less right wingers than there were before.
0: Uh, it's, it's kind of magnificent <laughs> a phrase like that.
1: <laughs> and the the approach that uh, Malcolm Turnbull had to same-sex marriage was written by Tony Abbott, the most conservative prime minister that we've ever had. Not to mention the climate policies that everyone on on this side of politics keeps objecting to. Those emissions targets also agreed by Tony Abbott in 2015. It's just the Liberal Party's eating itself from the inside out, and no one can explain
0: why. Well, my, my own theory, uh, which I will put to the table, is is that Australian politicians are bored. I, I, I genuinely don't think they have very much to do because the country is, you know, it it, it is functional, it's orderly, it's wealthy, everything pretty much works. Uh, I mean, if you get into national elected office in Australia, what are you actually going to do? I, I mean, I I, I I genuinely think that is part of it. Well, well I do think, uh,
1: sorry Matt, uh, climate change is a very big deal here and this is true. what has killed all the Prime Ministers going from, from Kevin Rudd all the way to now, both it's, Kevin it's, Rudd it's to It's <laughs> it, it, it is and What's really quite terrifying about this is that of all the countries in the world that are at risk from climate change, Australia is one of the most at risk. When climate change starts to have even more severe effects, Australia is going to have so many more bushfires, they're going to kill so many more people, it's going to cause so many more disasters, and yet no-one in politics, aside from
3: maybe the Greens, is really concerned about this. It does seem like it's sort of suicidal in in Australian politics to even talk about the climate. Um, But I wanted to ask you to Australians, I mean, what is it about these policies? Who who doesn't like them and why don't they like these policies? Well, fascinatingly enough, uh, the
1: policy that uh, really launched launched this whole leadership spill in the first place was the energy policy, known in Australia as the Neg, the National Energy Guarantee. Now Malcolm Turnbull secured the the support of two thirds of his party room. Now that in ordinary times would have been more than enough to take a policy in to, in, into government. And yet it was only because of a small handful of people that he was forced to then revise that whole policy. It's now been thrown out completely, of course. Um, but, but that small handful of people objected to it so severely that they caused the whole thing to be scrapped. Even though Malcolm Turnbull then was happy to revise the policy and said, OK, we, we cannot, we don't, do not have the support for this to go into government, then they still continue to mount the challenge against his leadership. Now, one of the most fascinating things about all of this is now that the dust is settling, we have a new prime minister, the deputy, Josh Frydenberg is the Minister for Environment. He was the one who actually designed that policy in the first place That since Brilliant. caused everything <coughs> and is now
0: on the floor. It's well, I mean, just 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 just, just, just imagine a long-standing centre-right party of natural government being driven completely insane by a vociferous minority of headbangers. Good thing it couldn't happen here. Um, <laughs> let's look now at Spain, the government of which has decided after several decades that the time has come to stop letting sleeping generalissimos lie. A plan has been announced to exhume... Francisco Franco from his mausoleum on the outskirts of Madrid and plant him somewhere less obtrusive, the better to discourage the deeply tedious people who regard the tyrant's grave as a place of pilgrimage. Franco ruled Spain from 1939 until his death in 1975. That period and the Spanish Civil War which preceded it remain awkward, if not volatile subject in Spain. Um, Chiara, uh, being Italian, uh, you come from a country with a certain amount of experience of having to figure out what to do with the mortal remains of um, let's be charitable and describe him as a divisive uh, historical figure and um how, how how has Italy, for example, handled not so much the historical legacy of Mussolini as the actual, you know, physical remnants?
2: Physical remnants? Well, obviously, his body was um, he was executed on, the, on the square. And then his body thrown away and then eventually hidden in a monastery of Benedictine monks um, for quite some years until it was then buried in the family tomb in Predapio in 1956. If I'm not wrong. And there it is still now. And the tomb has become um, the destination for the pilgrimage of, a, of neo-fascists in Italy. And uh, the, the tomb itself is also surrounded by a number of souvenir shops that peddle such souvenirs, such as truncheons, branded with fascist symbols and all sorts of busts and images of the Duce himself. Um, a recent update to a fascist law actually came into um, being last year, which Put, makes illegal the sale and I guess representation or 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 display of of symbols of fascism, which is definitely not going down very well in the town of Pradapio, or at least around the surroundings of the tomb. Um, but I feel very strongly about uh, not mixing up the idea of memory and commemoration in this in this situation, because people who defend uh keeping for example this, the, this franco's mausoleum going and his remains there and this, and that consider it as a historical monument don't have a point because there there is a difference between having a museum of the civil war that, that assesses the legacy of this event and i think it is important that we keep mm-hmm. thinking about this this thing um and then having a huge monument which he himself asked to, to have created and had created by people who worked for him, um, whilst there are dozens and, you know, I think 33,000 people still in mass graves around the site, uh, there's, there's a difference there.
0: I mean, Matt, it it is a tricky one, and it's made tricky in the Spanish uh, instance by the fact that that Franco is far from a universally repudiated figure in Spain. There are many Spaniards uh, who still hold him in some regard. If you are the modern government of a country like Spain, which is now a a democracy, um, despite Franco's best efforts, um, should that be respected? Do those people's sort of fond recollections of, of a Figure like Franco need to be respected, or do you just say you're wrong?
3: I think you have to say you're wrong. To be honest, I mean, I think you know, as as Chiara said, there is a difference between commemoration and 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 sort of something like this which is much more about celebration or at least was it was intended that way um and you just have to look at the the figures i mean as chiara said there's 33,000 people in in mass graves around this mountainside um and it's it's kind of those are unmarked graves and then you have this huge mausoleum which is celebrating uh, him and you know this mausoleum was built by by prisoners as well so the whole thing is is uh, is really really difficult i mean you can tell that uh, it, it's obviously been very sticky politically for for some time because um former Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, he basically sat on a commission report for six years um which was saying you should probably do something about this. and it, it's been left to uh, sanchez, who's the who's the new prime minister to do do something with it. and and I think it's a good thing that he's he's finally kind of built up the courage to do this.
0: Uh, ben, every country of course, has its thing that makes it a bit uncomfortable that it would probably on balance prefer never to have to have another conversation about. Um in the ca- in the specific case of something like Spain, which is a you know, a civil war which literally split towns, families and so forth, uh and divisions from which still persist is there actually an argument for just deciding as a nation uh, just 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 drop it pretend it didn't happen if subsequent generations 40 50 60 years down the track want to get into this fine but for the moment let's just uh pretend none of that ever actually happened
1: Absolutely not. I think that's incredibly dangerous. I, I think any country that doesn't want to face up to its own past is bound to not necessarily repeat those ills, but certainly misinterpret what actually happened. Because people will ask those questions, and if the information is not there, if they haven't been, if they haven't been given that education within the proper context, then they will draw the dots all by themselves, and who knows where those dots will go back to? And I think that that's part of the problem that has been happening in many parts of the world recently. Certainly in the United States, where we see a lot of these Confederate statues being removed, and then some people saying that they shouldn't be removed, and then somehow the Confederate history being romanticised and turned into something that it certainly wasn't. Uh, it even popped up in Australia recently when we had a Nazi supporter, for some reason, being interviewed on Sky News Australia, and that has now brought back uh, to well, certainly into this very small fringe fringe old right section of Australians the the white Australia policy, which is now starting to be romanticised and remembered as something that it certainly wasn't. So. It is incumbent upon all of us to see these things not as political issues, not to politicise these debates, but recognise them as values. They should be shared values that that we all understand. And, and racism is not a political thing. It shouldn't sit on one side of politics. It's not left and right. It's just a shared human value. So if all sides of politics were to embrace that, then maybe maybe things would be a little bit healthier.
0: Chiara, what do you think they should actually do with Franco, though? Because I've been trying to think of examples of, I guess, broadly similar figures. Gaddafi of more recent history was just buried somewhere anonymously in the Libyan desert. Saddam Hussein, I think there's some doubt as to where his body currently is. He was for a while in a family museum in his home village, I think of Alara in Tikrit province, but I think it got bombed either deliberately or otherwise and no one's quite sure what happened to him. I can remember visiting in the mid-90s Nikolai Ceausescu's grave in Gensha Cemetery in Bucharest. And it was a very, very uh, unremarkable, almost anonymous grave, which just had a tombstone on it, which said unknown Romanian hero, uh, although everybody knew who it actually was. Uh, that has since been upgraded somewhat, I think, although at the time Eleanor Ceausescu was just buried in a completely anonymous plot with two crossed sticks, um, which I don't know if they've, they've bothered to upgrade or not. But this is the problem that the Spanish government still has. They still have to think of somewhere to put him
2: yes i don't think there's any need to go to the extreme other end of the spectrum and 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 create an anonymous grave because then that does pendle, pedal to the to to i guess um the, the criticisms of those who are saying that this is trying to erase a part of Spain's history, I don't think this is the point. It's just trying to redress the balance. So uh, Franco should be buried just like any other person would be buried in the same way that the people who are now in the mass graves should be buried in a decent tomb where everybody gets their own names and, and, and
0: rights. Okay, there is more on that story on tonight's Monocle Daily at 2200 and also the current issue of Monocle magazine, which is out now, contains a report from Franco's monument at the Valley of the Fallen by our man in Madrid, Liam Aldous. Uh, We're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella and Matt Alagaya. Coming up next, some Sicilians attempt to welcome refugees.
2: Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living. For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or
3: from any good bookstore.
0: You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Ben Ryland, Chiara Ramella and Matt Alagaya. Now, no European country has been closer to the front line of the Mediterranean migrant crisis than Italy and no part of Italy more than Sicily. It was this factor more than any other which was crucial in bringing to power the Lega Nord five star Yahoo coalition currently governing the country. However, not all Sicilians are in agreement with the national government's hard line on boat-borne migrants. A shipload of rescued migrants has been docked in Catania since Monday. Those aboard have been refused permission to disembark. Hundreds of Sicilians have been protesting by brandishing Arancini at the ship in a gesture of welcome. Um, Chiara, first, possibly a bit of background on Arancini, which I have to say is a component of Italian cuisine I am yet to be convinced by.
2: No, I love arancini and I think arancini are a very good symbol which is why it's very interesting that they've been used for this protest. Arancini are rice bowls. Uh, Usually the rice is flavoured with saffron um, stuffed with a a myriad of different um, stuffings. You can have meat as well as ham and cheese and all sorts of other things and then the whole lot is breaded and fried. Um, And the reason why it's interesting is because it's it's traditionally in in a similar way to burritos, for example, in in Mexico. They were the travelling food so the food Mm -hmm. that you would bring with you and it's kind of self-contained it's nice and neat and you bring it with you uh when you're going on a journey which is why uh they have been brandished uh in in this protest and it's also a very very sicilian symbol A symbol that a food that every single city in Sicily tends to try and claim for themselves. But actually, nobody really knows where it originates. And like many things in Sicily, it probably has some of its origins in many migrations that have come to this island over the course of the centuries. Obviously, saffron being a spice that probably came during the times of the Arab um, invasion, if you want to call it that. But anyway, the, 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 the times when the Arabs used to reign over Sicily
0: i mean it is it is a smart piece of of branding really of this protest in that the protests are small, a few hundred people at most, and yet it has attracted a certain amount of uh, international attention just because of the um, the imaginative deployment of the Arancini. Um, Matt, is there a danger, however, that because the media are attracted by the Arancini angle, uh, they end up uh, presenting a, I guess a, a warped view of the actual national sentiment of Italy? It is very far from clear to me that the um, the government does actually not represent uh, majority opinion regards migrants, because I think if it wasn't for widespread satisfaction with the current situation, they wouldn't have got elected.
3: That's true. Yeah, and I think I, I think one thing to I mean Chiara will be able to sort of tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I think Sicily has a very different identity to the rest of Italy and particularly the north of Italy, you know. I think it's true it's enough. a very different place in terms of its economy, in terms of, you know, its society. And um we've just actually published in the, in the Summer Weekly uh, a an interview with Leo Luca uh, Orlando, who's the mayor of Palermo. And one of his big things is trying to welcome in uh, immigrants and he's he's very keen to make Uh, Palermo particularly, but also Sicily generally, a place where migrants can come and and refugees as well. And he's been very welcoming because actually, you know, the island's economy could do with a few people to to kind of, you know, work and uh, bring a bit more uh, economy to the place. So I think, I don't know, I mean, my feeling is that it's probably a good thing, but it doesn't represent the rest of Italy and particularly not the north where obviously Lega is so big. Um, But I think Sicily, this might well be a good representation of of political opinion
0: there. Just a quick thought on this, Ben. I think it's fairly obvious that the Italian government has taken a a good few cues from the government of Australia, in particular Scott Morrison, our new prime minister, who has overseen that immigration policy. The difficulty, I, I think, for people who object to the Australian policy is... Is, is the fact that, in and of on its own merits, as in, in doing what it was intended to do, i.e., stop the boats from coming, it has worked. What happens if it works at that level in Italy?
1: Well, I think the thing that we forget is that uh, much of the dialogue surrounding asylum seekers in Australia was actually brought into policy by John Howard, who was the last prime minister to serve a full term and is the second longest serving in history, one of the most popular and revered political figures that we have in Australia. And yet he brought in this contentious policy that is still the policy today. And I think we do need to stop for a moment and consider whether policies like this do represent the true personal beliefs of an entire nation, because I don't look at Australia's immigration policy and think, oh, what a horrible country. They must all be terrible over there, because I lived there for 30 years and I know they're not all terrible. They're actually, it's a very kind nation and it's a very welcoming nation. And multiculturalism is one of the strongest aspects of the Australian psyche. So we do need to consider whether this represents really anything about the true nature of political sentiment in Italy, and I would actually suggest that having, even if this is just a small group of people mounting a very small protest, and maybe it's getting a little bit more attention that, than some people think it should, it's also, it, it's it's a symbol of kindness, and you don't often get kindness brought into the debate when we're talking about immigration. So even if, uh, logistically, practically speaking, it's, it's making a very small difference, I, I think it certainly brings in another aspect to the immigration debate that could potentially cause people to think about this very, very differently.
2: Also with regards to the efficacy of these uh, policies we've got to remember that actually it was probably many many newspapers ac- across last year have reported that it was probably the actions of the minister miniti of gentiloni government's fame so mm-hmm. we're talking about gentiloni who we probably have forgotten by now um he made a deal with libya which had to do with kind of patrolling the coast and, and keeping the the boats not to depart from libya and many the, the number of migrants had dropped significantly since then so i don't know if if the if the efficacy can be Important on on these measures now.
0: OK, well, finally tonight, and looking at something completely different, uh, bad news for anybody who, back in 2010, bought the posthumous Michael Jackson album Michael. Bad news, that is, over and above the fact that they spent perfectly good money on a ropey collection of hastily cobbled studio floor sweepings by a long pasted artist. Worse than that, they didn't really buy a Michael Jackson album, at least not entirely. Record company Sony has admitted what has long been rumoured, that vocals on three of the tracks on Michael, they were up all night working, on that title, were actually furnished by an impersonator named Jason Malachi. Uh, here is a clip of that.
2: She cries inside every time she feels this way, and she's dying inside every time her baby cries, no.
3: Keeping your head up to the sky, keeping your mind up, stay alive.
0: I mean, he's pretty good. That is, a, that, is a, <laughs> that is a good Michael Jackson impression. I never would have guessed it. I, I, I would not have picked it myself. The question being, of course, is that if you have bought this record and you thought, I like this song by Michael Jackson, this is great, and you're now told it's not by Michael Jackson, should you like it any less? I'll ask you, Matt. Um,
3: Good question. I, I wonder, if he wrote the songs, then it's kind of then. It, then I think it may be fine. I don't know. I, I obviously think it's it's bad to kind of lie and mislead people in this way. But if it was written by him and it's it's performed kind of close to how he wanted it, maybe that's okay. And it's maybe okay to like it.
2: More it? importantly. Where do I get my refund? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but, but you, you ask the the question at the heart of this because what this puts me in mind of, uh, of course, is is the the brouhaha uh, which developed when the when the Milli Vanilli scam uh, was busted, and people who had and you know it, it's it's a thing that we shouldn't laugh at too much because it did go on to have genuinely tragic consequences, but nonetheless, people bought this record and indeed gave this record Grammys. Um, and then all of a sudden they were told that it wasn't necessarily sung by quite who you thought it was. And then people got incredibly upset. But it it didn't change what was on the record.
1: No, it, it didn't. But it, it, isn't it a little bit like buying a painting by Picasso and then being told, actually, that's not by Picasso, it's by the butcher up the street. You're going to be quite <laughs> upset if that's well, the case well
0: except you'd have bought the picasso because it has inherent value because it's a picasso and it's then worth less it's worth less on the open market because the butcher up the street painted it but is it necessarily an actually worse piece of art
1: actually i think the opposite might be true for this one because this is such an unusual situation and people are going to be so excited by this uh, a monumental error by sony i suspect that anyone who has a hard copy of this record uh, will be very Lucky, it'll become a, a collector's item. I
0: don't know. I think they might have pressed quite a few of them. It there, there may not be that much of a scarcity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you might be right there. Maybe I'm just being a little bit too optimistic. It did. It did, however, remind me of that wonderful episode of The Simpsons where uh, <laughs> uh, Michael Jackson actually did did guest star and, and uh, guest starred as someone who who wasn't actually Michael Jackson. Uh, after all in the in the storyline of the episode it's it's sort of like another one of those instances of The Simpsons predicting everything that happens uh, from here <laughs> on into the well, future
0: th- that that is certainly the case, but i mean do do people really have a case for a refund here Kiara? I mean, I know you didn't really buy it, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't in, so. in
2: fairness, I my knowledge of Michael Jackson is kind of limited to what we all know because it's part of the culture that everybody should be fed since since birth, basically. Um, so yes, I wouldn't have been able to guess guess the voice and the record. I I don't think there's a case for a refund, but there's definitely some sort of case for for Sony's knowledge of the thing and it going ahead and making money out of this. Surely. Well,
1: Andrew, you're the music journalist here. Is there any case for... for record labels scraping the the recordings off the floor Oh it happens all the time, them. my,
0: my favourite response, and I have to tell this story quickly because we are running out of time, but Cracker, the excellent band formed by David Lowry after Camper Van Beethoven were once so annoyed when Virgin Records, I think it was were going to put out a best of that they didn't want them to put out, that they re-recorded all their own songs and <laughs> released a different best of album on their own label and told their fans to buy that <laughs> instead of the one by Virgin, they also wrote and recorded a song about Virgin Records or directed to Virgin Records called, called It Ain't Gonna Suck Itself. Um, and on that <laughs> vengeance riddled note, uh, that is the end of today's show. Ben rylan Kara Mella, and Matt Alagaya, thanks for joining us. It was produced by Carlotta Rabello, researched by Fernando Augusto bacheco and Julia Webster. Our studio manager was David Stevens. I'm back with more on The Daily at 2200. I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you for listening.